inviting me along or, or at least uh, accepting the idea that I should come along. Um, and yes, I'm going to talk about the tension between freedom of expression, um, particularly in the media and the new social media and data protection. And it's part of a three-year early career Leverhulme-funded project, which is a bit broader. It's, it's sort of the, the, the tension between data protection and openness generally. So um, it has a, a very strong element of research governance as, as being a factor in that, although I'll argue that that is intimately tied, at least in the social sciences, to free speech anyway and also government and organisation transparency, which I think in cases like the MP's expenses, but in many, many other cases as well, are possibly not going in a rather different direction to the MP's expenses case. Um, we can see the sort of tensions there. Um, so, what? It's not moving. It's not moving. Um, Okay, so what, what I'm planning to do is, is four things. Um, briefly summarise the two fundamental concepts I'm using, data protection and freedom of expression, and maybe touching on that, why on earth I think there is um, an interaction between these two things, because I think possibly in a lot of public debate there they, they, they might be just a lack of comprehension about why one would be debating these two things side by side. Then I'm going to, so I'm going to try and show that there really is um, at least prima facie, a very, very serious tension. Then outline three potential ways of, within the law, structurally, of seeking to reconcile these two different frameworks and argue basically that none of them will look at whether they provide an adequate reconciliation, argue that at least as currently set out, they definitely don't, um, and offer some few brief conclusions about but really how the law should evolve, particularly given that the European Union, which passed its directive in 1995, as I'll um, explain, is currently rewriting its whole data protection framework, and there will be a new legal directive, or possibly even an, a regulation, but in draft by September. Now, whether that will address some of these issues is very unclear, and in fact, even if it does address it, whether it will address it in favour of free speech is even more unclear, particularly around debates about the importance of the right to be forgotten and the implications of that for, for the media. So, okay, data protection. Well, in, in this country, it's regulated by the Data Protection Act 1998. And what, what is that? Well, it's a UK statute which regulates and aims to prevent... A lot of people will say, you know, the invasion of privacy is a result of per, the use of personal information. But I think it's probably better to think of it in terms of a wider set of, of what is seen as, in the statute as misuse. So a decision which is made unfairly using one's personal information might well amount to a breach of the Act. A, a decision which is made in a way which discriminates against you on prohibited grounds might be seen as a, a misuse of data. Similarly, a violation of your rights, like your right to subject access. It's very difficult to conceive that within traditional notions of privacy, but according to the Act, that would be a misuse of that data. We've had data protection regulation officially since 1984, um, but it was a rather more limited statute in that case. And in both cases, it's had a very strong transnational component. So in the case of the 1984 Act, it was an implementation of, of Convention 108 passed by the Council of Europe on Automatic Data Processing in 1981, and that remains in force uh, and actually had quite a... Um, some of its fundamental concepts are also the concepts of the European Data Protection Directive passed in 1995. Um, and that, in turn, prompted a, a complete change of the law in the UK and, and the second Data Protection Act. And I think it's fair to say that compared to some of the Council of Europe um, conventions, particularly not the European Convention on Human Rights, but some of the lesser conventions, European law is rather more rigid in terms of really requiring fairly proper implementation, at least according to the letter of the law. So it's, it's even more strictly based on, on a transnational instrument. And what it does is, it, at least as a sort of bedrock, um, it, it requires adherence to what are known as eight data protection principles when any processing of personal data is going on. Um, 
So I'll come on to talk about what personal information is in a minute, or personal data, because that, that's quite related to how to reconcile. But just quickly to cover the principles in and of themselves. There are two rather overarching ones which really apply to any processing, which are fairness and lawfulness under principle one, and limited, specified, and compatible purposes under um, principle two. Now, all the principle, and, and then there are four more principles which are known by the regulator, who's the information commissioner, as the fair information standards about relevance of all information, not, not excessive quantities of information collected, must be adequate, time limited in terms of how long they're kept. Um, accuracy and where relevant up to date and also this panoply of various subject rights of which the most famous is subject access, the right to have print out of all the data which is held um, by a data controller which relates to you um, in all cases uh, and then finally the question. Yeah. Uh, just between the relation between you're talking about the UK data protection principles Yes. and then you said that these, these have been transposed through the European Directive and are these principles common across Europe? Or well, they are, but they're not put. They're not necessarily put in these eight yeah. in, in this particular specification. And um, that, uh, and in fact, if you look at the directive, it's not that they say that all of these things are principles. They have a number of requirements of which we have interpreted that to be according to this schema of principles. And that, that is actually important and relates to the, to the next, next okay. point, really, which is that, and by the way, the last two I've bracketed out because at least in terms of their structure, they're designed to, to be procedural in nature, to ensure that those first six principles, the first six stipulations aren't undermined by a procedural lapse in terms of security or yeah. export to a jurisdiction where they're not um, protected. But in practice, because of globalization, the requirement to ensure no export without adequate protection yeah. can be very, very difficult yeah. to... Um, yeah. But, I mean, going back to your um, point, yeah, I think it's really important to stress that the directive has many, many requirements, many of which are quite detailed. And in each of these principles, particularly fairness and lawfulness, there are schedules to the Act which set out what fairness means, say, in terms of data collection or data use, what lawfulness means in terms of the need to register data processing, etc., etc., and also to some extent for all the other principles, um, and it isn't what we might think is fair, or even what the UK courts might think are fair, it's what we've decided to pour in to ensure we cover the whole directive and call fairness. So, no, not every Data Protection Act in Europe looks the same. Okay. Okay, very quickly, what do I mean by freedom of expressions? So, in a very rudimentary way, I'm applying the European Convention's definition. And I think the most important element of that is that it includes the right to receive and impart information and ideas without interference. Um, and, you know, that information and ideas will often be about an individual. And even if it's not about an individual, it might well be de derived from data which at one stage was attached to. Um, information about an individual. And given the very broad nature of processing, that e even the deletion of data is an act of processing, that will mean that there will be some interaction with, with, with the law um, in many circumstances where information and ideas are being um, received and imparted. And I think at least by the time of the second Data Protection Act, that was beginning to be recognised by the media. So. Um, Rasaya Newell, who, who the, the, basically the head of legal and, and the head of the newspaper um, society, which is the peak body of the um, regional press in the UK, certainly re realised that when the data protection, the second data protection act was coming in. I mean, with some pretty cataclysmic wor words about how the data protection regime could devastate the media, it is actually, despite its quite technical language about the most fundamental issues, and there's a real danger of the closing net of data protection. Um, really squeezing out um, press freedom, freedom of information, freedom of expression, and it's those kind of issues I want to look at today. So I hope I've sort of laid some of the groundwork for, for why we might think that there is the potential, at least, for a tension between these two things. Um, but as I say, you know, a lot of people would sort of think, well, isn't data protection really about the protection of information in, in certain set defined databases? 
what, what does this have to do with freedom of expression generally? Well, that sort of relates to the first idea about how to prevent there being a, um, a vicious conflict, which is to limit the scope of what, what we mean by data protection and what sort of data is protected. And I want to examine whether that's what the law does in the first, sort of to see whether that helps us reconcile these two values. The second possible way of reconciling these two values is to look at those principles. Um, I've slightly preempted this in terms of answering David's question, but um, obviously those principles at least are set out in the first schedule to, to the UK Act are, are defined quite broadly. And perhaps we can robust, robustly interpret those principles so we take freedom of expression into account. And, 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 and so there isn't too much of a problem. Maybe it provides an appropriate balance if, if interpreted in a sort of liberal manner. And the third possibility is to have carve-outs from data protection laws for specific purposes of processing, um, which might be qualified in nature. And the one I'm going to concentrate most on is, is the carve-out, qualified carve-out for journalism, literature and art um, in I think it might be section 32, actually not section 33, so that's a, a typo. So very, very quickly, first off, I'll look at some of the fundamental concepts, namely personal, personal data processing and domestic purposes to look at the scope and how broad, broad or otherwise the scope is. Then I'll look at whether you can interpret the law generally in a, fun, in a variable geometry. And then finally, I'll look at this special purposes. So the most fundamental concept which governs um, data protection, I think, has to be the very concept of personal information or personal data, um, which is defined as um, data which relates to um, an identified or identifiable individual. I've just got to find my... seems to have been wrong notes here, actually, but... Now, I think it's important to stress that relates to um, traditionally has been interpreted in, in a very, very, very broad way. Um, so when th this was equally the same definition in the first Data Protection Act and in the Convention 108, um, and, and it was filled out in terms of a definition. So for example, the Library Association was very concerned as whether an author and book title would amount to personal data of the the author. And the regulator said, absolutely, yes, it is clearly information which relates to or is about, in some sense, that individual. So they put in their code of guidance published in 1985 that the question of whether data are public or private, however these terms are defined, has no bearing on the issue of whether something is personal data or not. Um, and this is a matter of law, not common sense. Uh, and, and they went on to say that violations of the law had, had, had consequence. So I can't stress more that the official law on the European level is that all public data, including menial things like author and title and who's who information or anything you can think of which is about an individual, comes within the scope of, of personal data. Um, now, this did prompt something of a backlash, particularly um, from the bibliographic community, and I'll come on to why it maybe didn't prompt such a backlash from the press at that time. And when the directive was being drawn up, um, there was pressure on the UK government to um, change that definition and to put pressure on Europe to change that definition. But Angela Rumbold, in Parliament as a parliamentary answer in 1991, when the directive was being debated, made it quite clear that, no, this is the definition and it is acceptable. Um, however, it, the, the, the things you know, continued to sort of boil uh, and, and, uh, uh, onwards. And um, actually in the context of a subject access request in the case of Durant, the Court of Appeal at the UK level um, did finally row back on this extremely broad definition and said, no, you know, personal data can't sensibly be any information about an individual. It has to affect the person's privacy. It has to relate to privacy whether in their personal, family life, business, or professional capacity. So there's still quite a broad definition of privacy, because in its core, we might think privacy only relates to someone's personal family life. They said, no, it can relate to business and professional life, but it's got to relate to privacy. The problem is, is that this prompted an extremely strong backlash at the EU level, 
um, both from the European Commission, which threatened enforcement proceedings. They've just been published, actually, as a result of pressure from the European Ombudsman. We're finally able to know absolutely definitively that they um, threatened enforcement proceedings as a result of this. And also from the working party of all the data protection commissioners around Europe, who issued a, an opinion in 2007 under the directive, making it quite clear that Europe was wrong and that the, a pretty broad definition, pretty similar to the one I've just outlined, was the definition um, in European law and ipso facto in, in UK law. So you mean the definition is information that affects his privacy? No. no. So Europe was basically ruled to be not the European definition. Okay. The European definition remains the definition that it was in 1991, basically, which is that it includes bibliographic data. Okay. That it includes. Okay. It's a little bit difficult to interpret the opinion because it doesn't concentrate on the same examples, but it stresses that it's any information about an individual. Okay. Um, and this has been underscored by two recent European Court justice rulings. So in the Sata Media case, which involved data which was fully in the public domain, um, the court was specifically asked whether data in the public domain was personal data, and they said yes, it was. Um, and similarly, in Bavarian Lager was a case about the release of documents under the access to documents provisions of the European uh, Union, European Commission. And the only reference to the individuals was their attendance at a meeting um, as representatives of the company in order to discuss aspects of EU competition law. And it was held, well, two things, but one, it's, it's the most relevant thing is it was held that the mere mention of those people was their personal data. And secondly, it was determined that there was no uh, there was no case for releasing the data. Which so is, mentioning that people were at a meeting with the European Commission to discuss competition <coughs> law was not allowed? Yeah, it hadn't, uh, in the circumstances of the case, yes. Uh, yeah, because it wasn't, it, as we'll come on to see, it, well, it wasn't provided for in the directive. What, once personal information is an issue, the, the directive becomes paramount and the directive provided no, no gateway for allowing that, the release of that information. And you begin, yeah, to see some of the tensions, yeah. Okay, so I think we've probably fully established that we can't limit the scope, at least in the European law currently, of data protection through personal information. So what about other avenues? Well, traditionally, in the UK, the scope of the law wasn't so limited by what we mean by personal information. It was limited by what we mean by processing. And there is a link there in the sense that, generally speaking, personal information becomes data once it's processed. But anyway, so processing was, was the limiting concept. Um, so Section 1.7 of the Data Protection Act 1984 said that only processing by reference to the data subject was included within the scope of the Act. And Section 1.9 said that processing solely for the purpose of producing a document uh, was excluded from the scope of the Act. Now, the way the press tended to interpret this was pretty liberally, so that you have to remember back in the 1980s, you know, documents were generally what the press were producing. They were producing newspapers which were in print, not on the internet. So they relied on Section 1.9 as being very important. And even Section 1.7, you might ordinarily think that was referring to a sort of large database where people are structured according to their name and you are processing by reference to that person. Now, that wasn't the regulator's interpretation of that phrase. They said that even using a word program and, and using Alt-F-S to search by name would amount to processing by reference to the data subject. They even went as far as saying that using a word processor which had the capacity to search in that manner would mean that you were processing by reference to the data subject. So there was an argument going on even in the 80s about, about the law, but very, people very much held on to those provisions, at least lawyers operating for newspapers would have held on to those provisions. But there have been two very significant changes. One, processing now is through the internet, through search engines, um, very much not about the production of physical documents and arguably is very much about processing by reference to the data subject. But in any case, both the Directive and the, and the Data Protection Act in the UK has completely deleted those exemptions. So now absolutely everything is covered, which is electronic in nature, 
and also sell manual records, but everything electronic in nature. And in the Lindquist case, which involved a Swedish uh, parishioner who published a personal web page, the ECJ even ruled that even referring to a person on an unstructured internet page amounted to personal data processing. So, yeah, processing isn't going to help us either. Um, finally, um, another possible total exclusion from data protection is that uh, processing solely by an individual for domestic or household purposes is totally excluded from the data protection framework. And this might have potential importance given that at least some of the freedom of expression concerns we, 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 we have are around this, what to do about this massive expansion of blogs and social networking by individuals. But again, the, the problem is, is that the common position published in 1995, well not published necessarily, but, but, but decided by heads of government and the commission in 1995 when the directive was passed and confirmed in the Lindquist case before the ECJ, was that publishing data to an indeterminate number of people was in no sense a, a solely domestic purpose. So, you know. A blog is, is, is clearly publishing to an indeterminate number of people. Well, I yeah. think, yes, yeah, I think that, that, that clearly is the case. So, so in fact, all of these forms, new forms of communication, at least if, in social networking, it's a bit more complicated, but at least if they have their profile open to the world, they are not within domestic purposes. They are processing and they are almost certainly using personal information. So that is basically the end, I'm afraid, of, of, of seeing data protection as being limited by the scope, the fundamental scope of data protection because the European framework has been to the almost the nth degree seeking to encourage the maximum scope, at least in the private sector. I'm not going to go through national security and the exemptions there. So the next possible avenue is to say, well, there's not really a problem because, as you saw, the, the principles which were drawn up were pretty broad, and you know they weren't they weren't you know who, who's against fairness, who's against uh, not being excessive holders of data. We should just interpret these principles in a sensible way, and you know it might, in some sense, be a right of privacy, but it's a right of privacy which is balanced in an appropriate way. I think it's true that some parts of, of, of the directive are re relatively open textured, like fairness and excessiveness, and they can be applied according to a variable geometry. And indeed, in some cases, and we'll come on to one in a minute, they, they, have, they have been, even in a freedom of expression context, and that, that, that sort of variable geometry is possible. But the key problem is that many of the data protection provisions were specifically designed not to be broad principles, but to be rule-like. And this was brought up during the debate when um, many people, particularly in the House of Lords, which had a rather stricter form of scrutiny of the, of the bill as it went through Parliament and the Commons, when people began picking out some of the clauses and asking the government why on earth they were so onerous. And Lord Faulkner, who was the Solicitor General, said, well, the aim is to lay down a detailed code and it must do under the terms of the directive. It's not like the Human Rights Bill became the Human Rights Act, which intends to lay down general principles. This is a code of data processing for Europe. And therefore, the incompatibility with freedom of expression in many areas remains. And just to give some examples, we, we operate in this country with an almost total requirement to register data processing with the Information Commissioner, Commissioner's Office. There is, apart from very, very uh, limited and innocuous forms of data processing, and of course, data processing for personal use, solely personal use, there is a requirement to register data processing with, with the Information Commissioner's Office. There's also a general requirement, barring very limited exemptions, to provide notification to data subjects, particularly when any data is being collected directly from them. And this has a very broad meaning in the Data Protection Act. I mean, even having a, um, taking a photograph of some amounts to direct collection of data. That's why with CCTV, you see signs up advising people as to who the data controller is and what, for what purposes the data is being collected because of the fair information provisions in the Act. Again, very difficult to square with freedom of expression. There are all the data subject rights included in principle six, which are certainly not about principles. They're about very strict forms of rights which have to be adhered to in pretty much all cases. The most famous of which is subject access, which could result in sources being disclosed, could result in um, lines of inquiry being, being curtailed, etc., etc. So, so they're, they're those sorts of problems. 
And finally, we, we should remember that the general ban on the export of data outside the European Economic Area absent ad adequate protection. Now, adequate protection must have a, a genuine definable meaning in European law, and according to the Working Party, it's heavily related to the way in which data is treated within the EU. And yet we know that the vast majority, uh, by population anyway, of the world has no data protection law at all. The worldwide publication of um, information, at least electronically, would seem to amount to a data export. That's certainly the opinion of the Information Commissioner's Office in this country. But how on earth can you ensure when publishing that you're ensuring adequate protection? Perhaps the most serious, or, 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 or what, what, what draws this into, into greatest relief, is the processing, any processing of any data which is defined in the Act as sensitive. Again, it's not data we think is sensitive. It's defined broad and categorically, such as any information about those categories is ipso facto, ipso facto sensitive data. So any information about political opinions, even politicians, would be sensitive. Any information about racial or ethnic origin is sensitive. And several UK courts have ruled that that means that every photograph which is colour is sensitive data because you are revealing information about someone's racial origin in that photograph. Um, health or condition, anything to do with crime, including even the allegations of a criminal activity, is sensitive. But newspapers publish crime reports all the time. Well, we'll come on to that. OK, fine. Um, and generally speaking, in order to process any sensitive data, you need a legitimate, specific, special, you know, sensitive data legitimising conditions set out in Schedule 3 of the Act and, and two associated orders. There are 20 of them and you only need one, but have a look at them. They're all very narrowly tailored and onerous. They're generally related to, often related to, a public function, the performance of a public function. And there's definitely no right to process on a balance of interest basis. That, you know, the public interest is in favour of this processing. Uh, no, you have to find a specific legitimising condition. OK, so David's point. We'll move on to... So no, I think that robust interpretation of the principles is not going to go the distance. We move on to sort of the final area of a carve-out on a qualified basis for the special purposes, which does exist. And it's regulated in the directive um, according to Article 9, which roughly says that member states um, must make, or, 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 or um, that exemptions may be made only if they're necessary in order to reconcile freedom of expression with uh, the right to privacy uh, or, or something along those lines. Um, the, 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 the provision of only led to some ambiguity about whether it is mandatory for member states to provide an exemption. Um, I think that the, the, the record shows that it was actually mandatory, but many states, it wasn't left clear what sort of balance was needed, and many states haven't actually provided any exemption for, 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 for the media at all in their law. Um, so definitely the transposition of Article 9 has been very, very varied around Europe and shows very little commonality. And as I say, it doesn't cover all the provisions of the directive, either, even what can be exempted, and it very much stresses that it must be on a, on a qualified basis. So in the UK, Section 32, which um, provides the transposition of Article 9, and what, what does this do? Well, it exempts from most of the data provisions, but only on the following four bases. It's only for the purposes of journalism, literature, or art that was required by the directive. Uh, it was with a view to the publication by any person of journalistic, literary, artistic material. It's pub um, in the reasonable belief that that publication would be in the public interest, having, special, having regard for the special importance of freedom of expression. And it's in the reasonable belief that compliance with each and every provision you're not complying with would be incompatible with the purpose in question. Now, that, that seem, oh, seems very, very broad. At in, in, in the Campbell case, at least at first instance, it seemed that that whole provision was likely to um, fall apart, though, because section two, you'll see, says, with a view to publication. Publication itself is an act of processing. And it was held, at least at first instance, that this only provided a protection against prior restraint. And that once publication took place, that being an act of processing, the full force of, of, of the act would apply. 
That was luckily, from the press, overruled by the Court of Appeal, um, but it indicates some of the difficulties. But in any case, even with the first instance Campbell decision being overruled, I want to argue that there are some serious problems in terms of basically two issues. One, the scope of what's included in Article 9 and Section 32, namely what is journalistic, literary or artistic. And two, the nature, even if you're doing journalistic, literary or artistic work, you still might have some, some restrictions which aren't very reasonable. So very quickly, because I realise we're possibly running a little bit uh, slowly. What are the limitations in terms of the nature of Section 32? Well, one thing is, is it doesn't exempt uh, data controllers from the requirement to register all automatic processing on the ICO public register under Section 17. And the relevant particulars include name and address, the payment of, of, inf uh, 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 of a fee, which, to be honest, amounts to a, a special tax. Uh, I would think, and, and security information which isn't placed on the public register. Even if it was exempted under an order, which it isn't, a Section 24 duty would apply to make the relevant particulars available on request. And in 2008, the ICO did prosecute a photojournalist, Charles Pycraft, for non-notification um, under the Data Protection Act. And at the same time, they wrote to the uh, National Union of Journalists advising them of the requirements of journalists to notify under the law. Um, and they said similar things in, in the press at the time as well, including the Press Gazette. Now, this is a restriction on expression um, and privacy, actually. I mean, quite counterintuitively, it being a, a restriction on privacy, given the fact that the Act was meant to be protecting privacy. But I think that goes to show that the privacy of data controllers, or indeed many rights of data controllers, is not foremost in the minds of the Act. It's the right of people who are purely data subjects. The NUJ did express concern over the privacy and safety implications and the requirement particularly of having um, a name and address, which in case of freelancers would almost certainly have to be their home address, live on a public database. And it's important to realise it goes far beyond the failure of the High Court to protect the identity of the Nightjack blogger, that this police officer who is blogging against outing by the Times using purely public data, um, the Times outed the name of that police officer. And just reminders of the case? So the Nightjack case was basically a blogger who was a police officer who was blogging undercover about activities in the police. Um, was outed as a result of the Times deducing certain information which he had disclosed himself and possibly other information available in the public domain and publishing his name. And the, the blogger sought to go to court to get damages to argue that, in fact, that was a violation of his privacy, which was legally actionable, and the court said, no, you know, this is the public domain data. But the interesting thing which I'm saying is that, at least according to the formal law, it, if you follow the European definitions and you follow the European approach, it would seem that under UK law currently, he would have had an active requirement to at least have a registration and have given his name and address on the public register. So this active requirement to violate your own privacy goes well beyond um, a, 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 the lack of a duty on others to protect your privacy, I suppose is what I'd say. And I think it has a wider effect on institutional policies as well. This, this fact that um, schools and local government, when they look into things like the photography at schools, the photography of nativity pays, look into the law and they realise that processing for domestic purposes is allowed without registration, but it must not be disclosed to an indeterminate number of people. Processing for journalism requires that you're a registered journalist. Um, they then draw up, and, and they realise that parents are not registered journalists. They draw up policies policies generally reflect what is allowed under domestic purposes, leading to requirements in nativity players and otherwise and at schools that you're not publishing in any way on the internet, um, which has been much criticised quite often and seems to re reappear periodically. And it seems to serve very little pu purpose, so that the ICO's own report commissioned um, and, and delivered by RAND said that registers of data controllers were only useful to lawyers while conducting due diligence exercises. 
So that's really all I'm going to say about the nature of Section 32. I think there is actually a lot more scope about Section 32, even when it's concerning journalism, to be litigated and to lead to some interesting results. But um, it's probably more um, interesting to, to look at the scope of, of, of Section 32, because I think that's probably more pressing. And that, first off, I think it's irrelevant to look at the Information Commissioner's Office's own policy on this which is that actually, unfortunately, it provides no guidance about the scope and mechanism for accessing the journalism, literature and art provisions. And this isn't as a result of there being no guidance. The registration section does list model registrations for 158 types of very diverse data controllers, but only two of them, journalist and learning and skills council for some reason, list in any way journalism, literature and art as the purpose for which people should be thinking of registering for. And some very, very, very notable absences of journalism, literature, art is something which the ICO appear to think uh, these sort of entities are engaging with is apparent when you come to publisher N841 where the ICO appear to think that, that most publishers are not engaging in journalism, literature, art. University as well that the model notification doesn't include it, and neither does networking site um, for, for networking sites which are operated and regulated in the UK. So that's ICO's policy, but perhaps the law itself is okay, it's just, just the policy of the ICO which is too, too, too restrictive or hasn't been thought through. Well, no, I think there's some problems with, with um, the law itself, particularly as it's being developed at the European level, and I'm going to concentrate on six very brief examples, four of which the argument seems to be that no journalism, literature and art are going on at all, and two of which concentrate more on the requirement that any all processing must solely be for the purpose of journalism, literature and art, which seems to be being interpreted that if there's any other purpose present, you lose all of the exemptions. There is an overlap between those two categories, but we'll see how we go. So one form of communication where I think it's pretty much universally accepted is not uh, journalism, literature, art, because it's not communicated to the public or a section of the public, which is a requirement of the Act, is any form of private speech, um, including on email, for example. And this results in the legality of processing being severely restricted, particularly as regards sensitive data. Any, any processing which involves sensitive data categories or the export of data, which takes place you know, with millions of people, pieces of data leaving the country uh, every year. Um, and there's severe problems also in relation to subject access in terms of the individual having a right to access that data, including an email. Um, so you're saying if I write an email that includes your name in it, and I write it on a BlackBerry, which then goes to a BlackBerry server, which is outside the UK automatically, then I violated the act? Well, you would have to, in, in some, in some um, jurisdictions, I think you would have violated that. So, for example, in Spain, you officially need a license or a notification, and probably if you don't have the consent of the individual, most likely a license to export data. In, in the UK, no, if, you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if it is adequate, adequately protected, and BlackBerry is well known for being very into security, you might yes. have a right. But it is exporting it to America every time you write an email. It would appear to be, yes. yes. Okay. But anyway, I mean, I thought you were going to say something else. Is Do, do you have to um, disclose the data to, to me if I say, well, I wonder what David has been yes. up to? Well, yes. according to the University of Birmingham's Data Protection and Email Policy published in 2009, oh, yes, you do. Because according to them, due to data protection, all staff and even students have to regard email exchanges as postcards, available, accessible to all. And largely, I think, because of the possibility of legal action, nothing derogatory or defamatory must appear in any said email. And all emails must be disclosed to the person about whom they are written, they, they stress. So you can see that there's a serious problem here in terms of how these things are being interpreted and actually how the Act works its way through. Another form, I mean, now we're sort of moving into, so pub, private speech is, is the real problem um, in the law. Public speech also has problems. So rating websites have generally been 
deemed, or in fact I can think of no case where they haven't been deemed, to be not journalism, literature or art. And that's because it's been argued that the mere automatic listing of personal data and the placing it online does not yet constitute the journalistic purpose or editorial design. It's only when the opinion-forming effect on the community as a whole is the dominant purpose of the data controller that that exemption can be claimed. So rating websites are ordinarily um, thought of in terms of individuals going to seek specific amounts, specific pieces of data for their own purposes to check up how good their teacher might be or how good their professor might be, um, not to contribute to a general debate among citizens. So they, they fail to be uh, journalistic in nature. And that followed on from a, the Saturn Media case I mentioned from the ECJ, which gave a definition of journalism, which when it went back to Finland got interpreted in a similar way, that um, this is about the publication of tax information in the database about individuals, that because that data was being processed in a way which appeared to satisfy, in fact in their case it seemed to be more about the purient interest of particular individuals finding out about particular individual salary, etc., etc. that wasn't journalistic in terms of seeking to contribute to public debate. Leaves the legal position of these sites very precarious. So in the Spitmick case, which was from that quote, the site was actually held legal, but that was due to various protections in the site that you were officially meant to be registering for a particular school, that you, it was not actually on the public web, it was on an intranet when you had registered for that school, and there was an ability to flag um, inappropriate content. But most web rating websites are not like that. They're fully public. They're, they're, they make a point of being available to all. And certainly the, the most relevant case, which was in France, of the Note to Be site, which was a teacher's rating website like that, held the site illegal due to a violation of fairness, relevance, and adequacy. And it flags wider issues such as the legality of search engines, Google search engines, which are used for a whole variety of purposes, including ones which go well beyond anything journalistic, literary, artistic, do process sensitive personal data, not apparently according to the schedules um, under the Act or, or, or the requirements of the directive. And the Spanish regulator has recently taken action on 88 counts against Google for people complaining about the search results which come in when they when people put their name into, into Google, including public officials who are unhappy that information about disciplinary action has been taken against them, and they allegedly think this violates their safety, and therefore action needs to be taken. So without search engines, the web wouldn't be what we know the web as, but it's very unclear that the web search engines are legal within the framework of the directive. And that another, I mean, Google seems to be flavour of the month for action against, uh, uh, by data protection regulators. Another issue they've gone after is Google's Street View. Now, Google has argued in Canada that Street View is an is a artistic production <laughs> and therefore should benefit from uh, the artistic exemption. But this is rejected by all privacy and information commissioners. The ICO made a, a sort of decision fairly informally in 2009 where they did hold the site legal, but again this is due to the various protections, the blurring of faces, the right to remove for any reason on request of data. But in Canada, a document was put out by the Privacy Commissioner in 2009, which seemed to say that Google required notification and consent from everyone who, who was, whose data was being processed. And there have been even more restrictions in various other countries. I mean, I put Greece and Germany on there, uh, but I mean, probably the most famous case is actually from Switzerland, where due to the failure of the site of Google Street View to be 100% anonymous, um, you know, legal proceedings are currently being brought against Google by the, um, by the Swiss Data Protection Authority. So this case will go to court uh, now. Um, and, you know, whatever data protection commissioners say, I think you know, their sort of rationale or their complete absence of rationale as to why Google either requires these blurring and removal of, 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 of information or even further than that requires explicit uh, notification and consent um, can apply whilst ordinary photography, much of which is unblurred and certainly is not going to be removed for any reason, is 
evidently legal. In fact, I think it leaves the legal position of unblurred photography extremely unclear. Social networking, so very quickly, the, the social networking phenomena prompted an opinion from the Working Party, I think in 2009. And um, as I say, you know, this underscored that the domestic purposes exemption was not available for social networking, which was published to an indeterminate number of people. But they said, well, don't worry, because the SNS social networking service user can benefit from the journalistic, artistic, or literary expression purposes. So, so there shouldn't be too much of a problem. Well, the problem is, is that given the range of purposes, this goes more into the solely issue, given the need for, for any processing in order to benefit from the exemption to be solely for the purposes of journalism, literature, art, due to the range of purposes that people are using these sites for, for social purposes, business purposes, political ad, um, advocacy, etc., etc., I think it's pretty clear the exclusivity requirement will rarely be satisfied, and once that isn't satisfied, you can't rely on the exemption. And so a rather more careful um, legal analysis carried out by Val Asanoi et al. in 2009 found that the directive actually seems to require the need for an unambiguous consent to process from every person whose data is being processed on the social networking site, even by the individual user. The obligation to remove all data on request for any, any reason, um, or no reason at all, I suppose. And the obligation, again, this comes back to this issue of registration and, 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 and name and address, to be open about one's real identity, because you are a, a data controller and you, you, you have a Section 24 or a Section 17 in this country duty to provide your, your particulars to anyone, particularly anyone whose data is being processed. So another um, example of the, the dangers of this exclusivity requirement, particularly in a Web 2.0 context, is its implications for what I call socio-political speech, which is speech which certainly is designed to contribute to public debate, but isn't being carried out by traditional media. It's being carried out by some social or political actor. And here, we do actually have a UK case, which was about politicians, because politicians often are trying to um, promote debate like this. Um, and in Quinton versus Pierce, the, the Justice ED in the High Court held that a politician's elect, election leaflet was not within Section 32. It was actually accepted by the defence, I think probably um, inadvisedly. He found no violation of the accuracy or fairness provisions of the Act in terms of he didn't find that the leaflet was inaccurate or it had been unfairly processed. But the reasoning of this, that you can't, you have to actually comply with all elements of, of the Act if you're a politician and wanting to, to engage in public debate, has very, very serious implications. And at least if you look at the comparative case law, it's not only politicians who need to worry. So in Canada, under a very similar Act passed in Alberta, a trade union who published a picket line video um, of people on the picket line, including people crossing the picket line, actually even had a sign up saying you will be on, you know, blah, blah, www, was held to be in violation of, of the Privacy Act, but couldn't rely on the journalism literature art exemptions for the determination was because they had other purposes for producing the video. They, they might be looking for... Um, who was passing in order to make a note of that in their records, who was passing the picket line. If there was any disorder on the picket line, they would use the video for that. So it wasn't solely for journalism. But then so many things, if that's the case, which are done by the new social media are not for journalism. What about all the activist networks who do stuff, which has a number of purposes on YouTube uh, when they're videoing things in a protest for all sorts of reasons? And what about Amnesty International, for example, which processes data which is sensitive in nature often about individuals partly for publication but partly also possibly even to pursue uh, various forms of protest against those individuals um, through other methods. And they certainly did raise concerns about the directive when it was being passed. I'm unclear how, how they found it subsequently. I thought I'd um, end by discussing, seeing as we're in a university, we're all attached to a university the problems which the directive creates for academic in investigation because even though academics publish articles, publish books in order to contribute to public knowledge and, 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 um, and debate, 
it's generally been held that they can't rely on the, the JLA exemptions either and that there's specific, very much more restrictive uh, provisions in the Data Protection Act and in the directive which relate to research, including historical research um, as well as uh, more scientific forms of research. Um, and therefore it's argued that they can't be solely re um, processing for journalism and literature art because they're processing also for research and therefore they're subject to almost the full force of the Data Protection Act. And that has, if that argument's right, that has a number of consequences. So Rosemary Jay, who's the foremost um, authoritative writer on data protection in the UK, advised the Sociolegal Studies Association in 2004 that the Act made almost certainly all covert and deceptive research illegal in this country as a result of the fair information provisions um, of under Principle 1. There are even more restrictions on any use of sensitive per personal data and there's no exclusion from data export or subject access provisions. And I do think it's been linked to evidence of an ultra-cautious compliance agenda within universities and the explosion of formalised research ethics or governance committees within universities which do generally require you to adhere when, you, when you're going through that application, not to the Act interpreted according to Section 32, but the Act with Section 32 stripped out, which can make many forms of investigation impossible. So I'll end with a quote from Robert Dingwall about some of these concerns, which is you know, the concern that maybe the more dispassionate, the more objective, the more ethically guided forms of investigatory activity are being over-regulated vis-a-vis the press, which are, which are unregulated, and much, much less regulated. And the data protection framework, as traditionally interpreted, seems to epitomise this problem. And he says, you know, why, why should it be the case that, that you know, reality TV, poke shows, are, are tolerated whilst evidently covert research is, is, is not, not okay and is possibly at least bringing in the J-quote almost certainly illegal. So very quickly, where do we go from here? Well, I hope I've shown that there is an under-recognised serious and growing tension between these two values. And moving forward, I think we need to, and this is more sort of mending and, and, and not necessarily the, the, the best way of looking at this, but to make it a better law, um, we need to remove the bureaucratic elements from the special purposes. We need a much broader freedom of expression provision within the next generation of data protection law, which doesn't just rely on an exclusivity requirement of journalism, literature, art, that is much, much, much broader and, and allows that balancing to take place. But I think, you know, we should probably also, and I'll quickly end on this, recognise that a lot of the values which data protection seeks to protect are not in and of themselves terrible values just they haven't been very properly thought through or balanced. And with the explosion of sometimes totally inappropriate information online, it is probably important that no activity is entirely exempt from those kind of values. Thanks. Thank you very yeah. much.